0: Hello, and welcome to Comics Over Time! This season, which we're calling Murdoch and Marvel, a history of Marvel Comics starring Daredevil, is our most ambitious project yet. Our plan is to look at the state of the comic book industry during a particular year, and then to examine in detail the major ways that Marvel Comics in particular evolved during that year. We'll look at who was creating comics, what new characters or storylines were introduced, and which comics either debuted or ended. After that, we'll get down to business, take out our stack of Daredevil comics, and look at what our old friend, the Man Without Fear, was up to during that same time. We're glad you've joined us. My name is Dwayne, and with me, as always, my good buddy, Dan. Dan, we're back for another week.
1: Oh, man, I'm excited about this. Last week was a lot of fun. And now we get to go and do it again, moving a little bit deeper into the beginnings of the Marvel Age. So, this week, Daredevil actually swings into that first full year for both the comics industry and America at large. This is actually a time that's filled with a lot of transformation and also more than a little bit of fear as far as what the future holds. Marvel is ascendant at this point, and we're going to see that in what the rest of the companies are trying to do to adjust to them and... In many cases, don't copy them. But the world outside the window that Stan Lee likes to talk about seems to actually be on fire right now. Welcome to 1965. Goodness,
0: that is uh, an ominous introduction to what we're going to be talking about today.
1: Yeah, it was an ominous year in a lot of ways once I, I started looking into it. 65 was a transformational time for america in a lot of ways um is it we'll talk about it when we get there but i think it was it was interesting also to see how you have to kind of scratch beneath the surface but you can see some interesting things in comics that are sort of reacting to it okay so before we get going though how have you been what's going on what's new and cool
0: uh i just wanted to mention it we, we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago when we were reintroducing ourselves that I'm a, a card game player and I am big into Marvel Snap currently, combination of my, my love of card games and my love of comic books, which has been actually further furthered both of those, by the way, because it's it, it, I've gotten to learn a lot about of characters I didn't know and all, all of that sort of thing, but we have a new season that started this week. Or this last week, I guess. Uh, now, as as the podcast is coming out, it is called the Black Order. It is going through and highlighting some of the uh, henchmen of Thanos. Uh, there is special variants of Death and Ebony Maw, and there's new cards coming out uh, this week or this last week. It was Super Giant and Black Swan. We're gonna have Proxima Midnight. All Obsidian and and all of those uh, wonderful people that we got to see uh, during some of the some of the books that we that we looked at and some of the MCU films had some of those characters as well.
1: Very cool. And for those of you who haven't uh, haven't seen some of his uh, his other postings, Dwayne is not just a player of these games. He is he is a a master of them. He is he is the end boss to a certain extent. Back in Hearthstone, you went legend multiple times, correct? Is that what they call it, is legend? Like,
0: yeah, you hit legend. I, I hit it 32 consecutive months.
1: Yeah. I I made it to the thing two below legend like once, and then just decided I couldn't put in the time or, or just sucked at it. And then in Snap, it's similar. There's something kind of equivalent to legend. What's yes, that called? It's,
0: it's called going infinite, uh, reaching rank 100 or higher, and uh that I've been doing ever since May of last year. So I'm at about eight or nine months uh, going. infinite.
1: There you go. So that uh, that's pretty neat. new cards, new stuff it's always fun. Uh,
0: how about you anything going on up in your neck of the woods?
1: Uh, I've been as uh, people might have seen a while ago out on uh, on social media. I am in the midst of building myself comic storage cabinet it's a nine drawer comic cabinet that i'm building with pull out drawers and because i saw all these other people with these swank cabinets so now my entire garage is filled with boards that are in various stages of being stained or poly or readied and eventually i'm going to put it all together and hopefully in a couple of weeks we'll have a result here
0: very nice And with that, I think we should look at uh, 1965 and what happened in comics. The Year in Comics
1: This was, a kind of like I noted before, sort of a difficult year in American politics and culture. Comics largely stayed clear of outright commentary on the Civil Rights Movement or the Vietnam War. But this was a year where we had the March in Selma. We had the death of Malcolm X. You had the Watts riots, uh, making it increasingly difficult for comics to continue to ignore black Americans within their pages. Similarly, you have the Vietnam War and rising opposition to that war. And this began to change the way that war and, in fact, superhero comics dealt with certain themes uh, concerning America and concerning um, our military. America and Russia were also accelerating the space race, fueling even more space and sort of science-y kind of plots, which had always been a big thing in Marvel, obviously, but Marvel was playing more and more into that theme. So, yes, there's a lot going on within the culture. And, of course, it's the first year of the Johnson administration. We have the actual passage of the Civil Rights Act. We have all of these things going on. Within comics themselves... It was actually a less transformational year than some, but it was a year where there was a lot of interesting stuff going on, and a lot of the things that were most interesting, you kind of have to dig a little bit for. So at DC, we got the Doom Patrol released, which is kind of DC's answer to the Fantastic Four, sort of this dysfunctional family. DC also at this point is still claiming that they're not worried about Marvel. Marvel's a flash in the pan dc's the big guys and that is actually sort of true you know that apocryphally dc is still selling four times as much as marvel at this point but marvel's the one that you're hearing about on tv marvel's the one that you're getting articles written about it's the marvel characters that are the cool ones that are being featured by magazines and the like in other things back at warren publishing there's a magazine called help and in help number 22, Fritz the Cat debuts. Now, you may not have heard of Fritz the Cat. He, I, ha- I have not, sorry. He is a thoroughly profane, uh, sort of very sexually active cartoon cat that is totally inappropriate for children, even though he looks <laughs> like he would be a children's <laughs> character. Sure. Comes from the mind of Robert Crumb. And this is actually interesting because it's hard to it's hard to say where underground comics begin because really there's been comics that were produced by folks who are out of the mainstream for decades and decades. But however you slice that up, Robert Crumb is going to be important to the idea of underground comics. In 1968 we're going to get a magazine called Zap that he'll be a part of. And Fritz the Cat will be a part of all that. But I think that having fritz come out here in 65 kind of starts to show some of the other currents in comics that even as marvel is trying to say comics aren't just for kids there are folks out there who are going why should comics even be remotely appropriate for children you know (laughs) and so it's kind of interesting we also have kind of like i'd mentioned some things that are starting to show some changes within the way cultures are going, uh, comics are going to try and deal with racial and and military uh, themes. There's a new book called Lobo that actually comes out from Dell Publishing. Lobo number one is the first sort of comic book with a Lobo number one is the first mainstream comic book with a black protagonist in it. He's a character who comes almost out of the the Buffalo Soldiers from the Civil War, which was a group of black soldiers that fought uh, on the Union side. And in this one, his his race is never actually mentioned. It's obvious he's a black guy. He's sort of like a, a gunfighter in the West who goes around much like a lone ranger. There's only two issues of this ever published. Uh, and there's some significant question as to exactly why there's some rumors that in many parts of the country it wasn't even put on the shelves because they wouldn't actually allow a cover with a black (laughs) on it the publisher said no that in actual fact it was just that sales were low but it's, it's hard to tell exactly what's going on we also had enemy ace who debuted and i think enemy ace is interesting because it's actually a book about a world war one german pilot but he's the he's the protagonist and even though 50 years have passed since world war one it's still a little weird having an american comic book where the enemy is the protagonist he's shown as somebody who is you know he has a moral sense and and like he's not a bad guy he's just a guy on the other side and it's interesting to me that when you start to get the Vietnam protests and some of this stuff, that this would be almost like an implicit question of, you know, are the folks on the other side really all that different than us? That I think might have been a way that DC was sneaking in, uh, or Bob Kaniger was sneaking in some interesting um, commentary. In terms of new characters, we've got Thunder Agents from Tower. Sherylton brings back or or gets us the Captain Atom comics. Archie decides that they're not just going to do Archie comics. They're going to actually have the Mighty Crusaders, with Flyman, the Shield, and the Black Hood. A lot of these are old 1940s characters that they're bringing back because they have the licenses for them. Yeah. Disney uh, gives us Super Goof, which is goofy in his superhero identity. Kirby <laughs> turns into the Fat Fury, which is almost certainly a book that would be inappropriate for today's audiences and Archie himself actually gets a secret identity as pure heart the powerful and becomes a superhero potentially just in his dreams although we're not exactly sure <laughs> but also Betty also gets a a superhero identity and what it Real. really shows is that superheroes are taking over comics and sure. all of the other publishers who've been trying to sort of keep their own stuff going stick with the funny animals stick with the romance stick with the slice of life are finding that they're having to inject superhero elements to just sort of keep up with this runaway train that is marvel so it's an it's an interesting time as far as that goes what are some of the big moments that
0: you want to highlight
1: so a lot of these are just sort of little bullet point type things but um reading through a number of things a marvel first 80 years the american comic book chronicles book that talks about marvel year by year and dc year by year i found a few things that i thought were some good bullet points to just kind of give you an idea of where comics are going and and how comics were going to be affected by things happening around them One thing that nobody really thought was that big at the time was that the 1943 Batman serial, which was a series of short, almost like pre-movie cartoons that were released, they were like 10, 15 minutes each, were stitched together and released as a movie and sent around to college campuses in 1965. Really? They were a hit, but they were a hit because everyone went and mocked them because they were so goofy. (laughs) Okay, The word that got attached to it was camp. Oh, God. Interestingly enough, we want to enjoy this year while we have it, because this is the last peaceful non-Batmania year that comic books are going to have for a while. So that Batman serial being re-released and the like probably influenced substantially a lot of the stuff going on with the 1966 Batman show that we'll be dealing with next week. We also started seeing comics being looked at as collectibles. There were articles talking about how, you know, some of those old comics you've got laying in your garage or up in your attic are actually worth some money now to someone. And so, with that, we actually got the beginning of even a grading system. Uh, there's somebody named Bill Spicer who published a uh, fanzine guide, and within it, he had a basic idea of the, you know, near mint and Good and very good, and all these other conditions that we now use today, I think fine is the only thing uh, that needed to be added. So it wasn't quite complete. There have been tweaks since to the way, the, like the Overstreet Guide does it and the like. But mm-hmm. nineteen sixty-five was essentially the beginning of the idea that comic books should be kept in immaculate condition, and that they would be worth more if they were. So interesting probably a good and a bad development for comics <laughs> over the years. yeah uh similarly jules pfeiffer's great comic heroes was released this is actually a book uh that talked about the history of comics but then also importantly i've, I've got it around here someplace i tried to find it for the show but i yeah, i don't know it's it's someplace <laughs> it actually has stories in it as well so besides just talking about the history of comics it actually reprinted a lot of comic stories that were really available nowhere else so if you wanted to see like the origin story of shazam or the first issue of batman or something like this a lot of those things were published in there in a format where you know people hadn't been able to see them for 20 years or more so kind of a cool book i also like pfeiffer because he in general is a bit of an iconoclast about comics there's a lot of folks who want comics to grow up and become something he's like no comics are supposed to be disrespected they're supposed to be not really looked at and that's why we can do all of this crazy sort of subversive stuff within them okay as soon as comics get noticed by the general culture everybody freaks out because of what goes on in comics and so we want <laughs> we want to have people not thinking about us right sure there was also a lot of things that sort of started to let you see what was going on in terms of changes the number of books uh, like for instance mutton jeff had been published since 1939 consecutively and they closed that down in 1965 a number of other titles i think um Blondie, Dagwood and Blondie, all of of those books actually ended publishing that year as well. So you did have a number of things coming to a close, and a lot of your more traditional comics actually were having a tough time finding a market, even as the superheroes kind of took over. And keep in mind that even as superheroes are taking over and Marvel is gaining 20 or 30% a year, the overall comic market is shrinking drastically because Marvel is not selling enough new comics to make up for what Dell and Gold Key are, are missing. Some of the books, like Superman, are still selling really well, but your your 5th, 6th, 16th, 26th books are selling far less than they did before, and overall you're seeing a retrenchment in the market.
0: You want to talk through some of the top-selling comics in 1965?
1: Yeah, so DC started putting in their their circulation numbers again, so we've got them back. And the okay. first six books are all DC. And more than that, they are essentially all Superman. Because it's Superman, <laughs> Superboy, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, Action Comics, and Adventure Comics. And Adventure Ow. Comics at this point is essentially Legion. It's Superboy and the Legion. So you have two Superboy comics, two Superman comics, and two Friend of Superman comics. (laughs) So just a little bit of Superman at the top. Yep, uh, and then Archie sneaks in at number seven. World's Finest, which is Superman and Batman, is eight. Batman is nine. And then you got Walt Disney's Comics and Stories, Justice League of America. And that that actually is number 11, so the top ten ends with Walt Disney's Comics and Stories. Coming in at number 50, our top reported Marvel title, Journey into Mystery, with 232,000 copies. Essentially less than a third of what Superman is doing.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: Yeah. It's kind of crazy.
0: That's, see, that's worse than where we saw them last year, right? If I remember right, they had like the 38th book or something. Was yes. 1964. But...
1: One of the things that's weird is that Comicron does not have all of the sales registers. So, for instance, we don't have Fantastic Four and Spider-Man in here. And we won't for a couple of years. There's a good chance that they are higher. But I do think that, uh, that from what we're seeing, yeah, the, the other Marvel titles aren't gaining that much. There's also the fact that Marvel's publishing more books now on a regular basis. I think they got a little bit more publishing again room this year. So part of their improvement is just that they're able to publish more titles.
0: The Year in Marvel. Excelsior! Alright, Dan, what what was 1965
1: like for Marvel? You know, it was actually a pretty great year for Marvel Comics. It's not as crazy productive a year as, say, 1962 or 1963 had been. But in terms of almost any other comic co- company at any point in history this would be a banner year with all of the stuff that they create right okay. and that said not everything went well though they did have a number of missteps including a line-wide rebranding we're going to talk about a little bit later that uh, really okay was, was quite weird quite weird there's no actual new marvel comics this year They didn't bring out any new titles. The closest thing they came to a new title was that the Submariner replaced Giant Man as the second feature in Tales to Astonish as of issue number 70. Other than that, things remained pretty static. The same books that they were publishing in 1964, they're publishing in 1965. Uh That, That said, we get a bunch of new characters. For the heroes, we get S.H.I.E.L.D., just the entire organization. We get Warriors 3, we get the Inhumans, we get Kazar returning in X-Men number 10. This is another of those characters that had actually been with Marvel forever. It, he debuted again in Marvel Comics number one. He's essentially a, a, we don't want to call him a rip-off, but he's he's a Tarzan rip-off. Tar- yeah, he's very, <laughs> he's a,
0: very Tarzan-y.
1: He's a jungle guy with, with a big cat, right? Him and Zabu. The other thing that comes along with him is a new location and that's called the savage land essentially in the marvel universe antarctica has this weird sort of i don't know in almost like protected pocket of a yeah. jungle paradise in dinosaur times so you have yeah. all sorts of prehistoric animals and it's a it's a place where there are humans and that's where Kazar ends up and also um Shanna, who's going to be kind of his girlfriend and, and wife and fellow adventurer down there. That's later, though. Uh, in, in the Spider-Man universe, we get some really important characters. Mary Jane Watson, Gwen Stacy, and Harry Osborn all debut this year. Oh, wow. So none of those were actually in the first I don't know, 15, 20 issues or whatever of Spider-Man. We get all of those just within this uh, this year. And then as far as the villains go, again, we get Lizard, we get Absorbing Man, uh, the organization, criminal organization called the Magia. We get Juggernaut, the Destroyer, and the Sentinels. And Again, it's a pretty good run of, of new new characters there as well.
0: A lot of those characters I've heard of before. That is a, Absolutely. quite quite a list. And I did not realize that a lot of them had been around since 1965. Yep. Yep, indeed. All right. Do you want to talk about some, some big moments for,
1: for Marvel this year? Yeah, so there were quite a few things, though, that happened in terms of events and the like. Some of which were pretty darn important indeed. One of the first ones is that the Avengers team that was originally assembled back in Avengers number 1 is disassembled. Stan Lee and his crew were starting to have trouble with essentially their readers because people kept asking, well, how can Iron Man be here if he's over there or why is it <laughs> that, you know, the Hulk is doing this and now he's still able to be here in New York? And because all these other characters had their own books, and you had all these kids writing in all the time trying to get no prizes. It just became a nightmare, probably, for continuity's sake. So what Mm. he did is he took most of the characters that had their own book, other than Captain America, who leads the team, and he sent them on their way, brought in a new Avengers, this time using actually three reformed villains, which is kind of interesting. You've got a team of Cap, Scarlet Witch, Quicksilver, and Hawkeye, all characters that debuted just the previous year, all of them reformed, and now they form the new core of the Avengers. Interesting. that's that happens that's, yeah it's really really interesting yeah that happens in avengers 16 we also get uh some big life events peter parker graduates from high school in amazing spider-man number 28 and reed and sue get married in fantastic four annual number three so something i want to talk about in the takeaway but i think it's really interesting that you have you have people progressing through their lives at this point in the Marvel Universe in a way that they don't necessarily always these days. So, yeah, kind of cool stuff. In terms of the company itself, you've got things going on that are kind of kind of interesting. You've got the boy of a bullpen bulletins page becoming a regular feature in all of their books. So previously, Stanley would have little boxes he'd put in letter columns or things that would be here or there, but it wasn't something they did all the time as of nineteen sixty five there's always going to be one page in every Marvel comic dedicated to sort of news about Marvel, so it could have a stand soapbox or it could have information about upcoming stuff. it could have a little biograph or a little biography of some of the um writers artists etc one of the things that made marvel unique was that instead of trying to hide away his creators so that they didn't then get leverage to where he had to pay them more lee actually did the best he could to promote all of the people who were working on the books as sort of celebrities so that he could then use that as a way of encouraging people to buy the books and to connect more uh, Mm. with, with the company and with its creators so, we also see uh, reprints starting for the first time. We actually have uh, Marvel going in and reprinting some of the older versions of its its early works. First one was called Marvel Collectors Item Classics Number One. I have a ton of these. I never thought they were worth anything back in the day, and I haven't taken good care of them, and that was bad because <laughs> if you've got regrets, I have these, a few. <laughs> Yeah, if you've got some of these, uh, and I've got a lot of them that have some of the, the really early reprints of some cool stuff, they actually have some pretty decent value. So, uh, But they're they're thicker books, and they reprint a lot of the classic early stories so that kids that are coming in now three or four years later are able to find a way to catch up and and bring themselves up to date on the stories. In a world that doesn't have, you know, digital piracy on the internet where you can go back and read anything you want or marvel unlimited where everything's available uh you know essentially for a few bucks a month being able to get these old stories and read them was really really cool
0: yeah i would bet
1: and then the very last thing one of the things that stan lee's trying to do is raise the profile of marvel comics and he's been seeing all of this stuff going on with like lichtenstein using comic book panels to create his pop art and then selling it for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And all of these different other art styles that are kind of riffing off of comics. And so he decides to change the name of Marvel comics to Marvel pop art productions, because he thinks a lot of people out there. Yeah. A lot of people out there. He's like, don't like to, to say they're reading comics. We're fine literature. And so we are now, and henceforth, Marvel Pop Art Productions. And so if you look at the books...
0: This this is the rebranding you were talking about.
1: Yep. If you look at the books from the last few months of 1965, and, spoiler alert, the first couple months of 1966, they will have a different branding on the cover than all of the other ones that you read. Because instead of having the Marvel Comics masthead, they will have Pop Art Productions mastheads. Ah. I did, not, no, I... I did not did not even notice that. So if you look at Daredevil number 8 on the cover, you'll see that it says Marvel Comics Group in the upper left with a picture of Daredevil. And if you look at Marvel Comics number 9, or Daredevil number 9, you will say see that in the top it now says Marvel Pop Art Productions oh, instead. Goodness. And he has... I think it's like four or five months. So number nine has that. Number 10.
0: Nine through By 11. number 11,
1: it's back. So hmm. Daredevil was bimonthly or so at this point. So because of that, it didn't come out all the time. So there's only two of them that came out during the pop art era. Uh, but for some of the ones that are more more regular books, there'll be three or four of them.
0: It doesn't. It didn't. It didn't last very long. It sounds like no,
1: no I have, in fact, at one point considered going out and uh, and I've got most of them, but accumulating all of the issues from that four or five month period, so I would have a complete collection of the Marvel Pop Art uh, Comic Company. Kind of crazy.
0: All right, Dan. What does the bullpen for Marvel look like at this point? We're, we're through, we're going through another year. There was some increase in okay. the, uh, in creators last, last year. Did, did, did we see, uh, a bunch of new artists or, or writers this month or this year? Staff is,
1: staff is pretty stable. There are a number of new people. We're going to see there's like 11 new people who came in, but most of them didn't do a lot of stuff in that particular year. There were some that that were really heavily used that year, but a lot of them uh, were just getting started. So, in general, the top creators for this year are much the same as they were. Stan Lee, still uh, 175 credits as writer, scripting, and editor. He's got his name on basically everything, so that's kind of how that works. Artie Simic, 96 credits as letterer. Stan Goldberg, 105 as a colorist. So those two were the primary uh, letterer and colorist for the for the line jack kirby steve ditko and don heck again were primary pencilers and, and artists bob powell and wally wood also did quite a bit each of them had about 20 books so something like you know one one and a half a month something like that as far as the letterers or i mean as far as the uh, inkers dick ayers vince Coletta, chick stone came in uh, Mike Esposito, Frank Gio- Giocchia, and Carl Hubble as well. So there were a number of folks who, uh, who kind of were brought in to do just a few things. We'll see in the, in the Rookie of the Year when we talk about that as well, that one of the things that's starting to be a problem for Martin Goodman is that as Stan Lee becomes better and better known, he begins to worry about Stan having leverage over him In terms of salary negotiations, Goodman, Goodman has always been cheap and he doesn't want to pay anybody any more than he has to. So he starts forcing Stan to bring in additional people to write just to make sure that Stan knows that, you know, if he if he gets too out of line, he can be replaced, too. There's other writers out there.
0: All right. So who are some of the new people that came in during 1965?
1: Oh man. So 1965 was an interesting year. We had three, six, nine, yeah, 11 people. And so when I was taking a look at this and getting ready to do the kind of the, the research on, on Rookie of the Year, John Giunta actually only has one credit lifetime for Marvel. It's Tales to Astonish number 69. And that he penciled and inked it. Leon Lazarus also has only one Marvel credit for Tales to Astonish number 64. He, however, had worked for Goodman at various magazines, writing for his humor magazines and men's magazines and whatever. And for whatever reason, Goodman said, I need you to do some stories for Marvel. And he's like, all right, well, whatever. And he ended up doing one. Larry Ivey, a writer who ended up having only four credits. So again, not somebody who spent a whole lot of time with the company, Bob Powell. Uh, a little over a dozen. He had been in the comics for a long time. In fact, he'd been really associated with a character called Mister Mystic back in the like forties. He's also a really good penciler and was famous for sort of some of the nineteen forties, fifties, good girl type art, um, more like you know pinup type art and that sort of thing. Uh, so he's got a long career, but not so much at Marvel. Carl Hubble uh, did a few titles uh, inking on Warren Western books, and then had a couple of, I think, Tales to Astonish or something he worked on. Werner Roth actually is a interesting fellow because he worked on X-Men almost exclusively. Titled as, normally his, his name in the credits was called J. Gavin, but his actual name was Werner Roth. And he has about 100 credits, almost all of them on X-Men books. Worked with the company for quite uh-huh. a long time. Frank Giocchia, however that would be pronounced, uh, maybe just call him Frankie Ray. That's what he, a lot of times he called himself at the beginning. He actually worked uh, for Marvel through the 60s right up into the 80s. Uh, has hundreds of credits. A uh, very, very good, solid inker. Uh, somebody that I've read a lot of books that he's inked. And then we have four people whose first work for Marvel, at least in the Marvel age. Some of them had worked for them back in the 40s or 50s. All of whom are in the Comics Hall of Fame. <laughs> really? Yep. And okay. They have different stages in terms of qualifying for my, uh, you know, who's, who's the rookie this year. But uh-huh. Alex Toth is the first one. I had no idea Alex Toth ever worked for Marvel. And in fact, it appears from what my database tells me, that he only ever did one story for them. He did X-Men number 12 as a penciler. This is a guy who has done so much spectacular stuff in comics. He's a brilliant illustrator, but then he also got into animation later and was responsible for redesigning most of Hanna-Barbera's stable. So like when you look at Space Ghost or something like Uh this, that's our man, Alex Toth, doing a lot of that. So he was somebody who transitioned into animation and did spectacular work there. Uh, He went into the the Comic Hall of Fame in 1990. Marie Severin almost certainly is the most prominent female creator of Marvel's Silver Age. She was co-creator of The Cat. She did the initial design of Spider-Woman's first costume could do just about everything. She wrote, she was an an artist, both pencils and inks, and she was also the primary colorist for Marvel Comics for a long time. So, somebody who also did really, really spectacular like caricature work and things like that, and so she did a lot of things in sort of some of Marvel's humor mags and stuff like that. But, she has over 800 credits within Marvel and would be a pretty darn solid candidate for rookie of the year in, in most normal years you'd think if it wasn't for the fact that the last two guys are on the list john ramita john ramita senior
0: senior yeah. i have
1: him listed here as spider god but he is essentially after steve ditko left spider-man it's stanley needed to find somebody new for the book and he settled on Remi- john ramita as the guy to do it He took over with like issue 38 or something like that and basically drew the book for hundreds of issues. If you look at the Spider-Man that is on like underoos and the Spider-Man that most people who don't regularly read comic books think of as Spider-Man, that's a John Romita Sr. drawing, right? So he is undeniably one of the most important creators in the history of marvel because he's sort of the steward and the standard for spider-man right he passed away just this summer actually after a long long career and then also his son john Romita jr has become in fact you really like his art i think there's been a couple of times we've had covers back in moon Knight and stuff where you've you've enjoyed that so yep and so he's got a legacy there as well where um there's really only two kind of like in baseball, you've got the bonds and you've got the Griffies in comic books. You pretty much, you pretty oh, much no, have the Kubert's it. and, and you have the Ramitas because they're the, they're the two families that have sort of this incredible legacy uh, of uh. a parent and a kid who both do stuff. So, and then our last,
0: I was going to say, how could
1: you top these last two? So, our last one is Roy Thomas. And I will have to say, I actually had to stop doing this when I was getting it like put together. Because I got emotional reading about and typing up Roy Thomas' accomplishments. This guy made most of the 1960s and 1970s Marvel I love. He also then, and it doesn't really, I guess, help in being a, a Marvel Rookie of the Year, but he's the guy who wrote two of the three stories that were the, were in the comic books that I first bought the day I started my collection. Because he wrote, he, he wrote the InSort story for All-Star Squadron in Justice League number 193, and he wrote All-Star Squadron number one. He was famous, in fact, for his love of the 1940s characters but within marvel he became almost immediately to stan lee almost like a second hand and second in command so he wrote all of these stories you know and i'm going through he wrote uh you know the avengers books with like the kree skull war with that were drawn by neil adams he wrote the x-men books that adams drew uh, in like the 50s probably the The only X-Men books from the first 75 or whatever that I really loved. He wrote Conan uh, with Barry Windsor Smith, introduced Conan. He's co-creator of Wolverine. He co-created Iron Fist with Gil Kane. The guy has over 2,100 credits or something like this with Marvel. Mm, And I thought this was going to be a really tough decision for me. Because I love John Romita's stuff. But when I look at Roy Thomas, I just don't know that there's any question. And now, there's going to be somebody who's a big Spider-Man fan who's going to challenge me to a fist fight on social media <laughs> over this. And I don't blame them, right? If you're really into the Spider stuff, Remita probably is your choice. But Thomas just had a transformative effect. And the other thing I think is important about him is he was one of the first of the next generation, the younger generation that came in, that came in loving comics and trans- and tra- sort of transformed it because a lot of the guys from Lee's generation were in comics because they couldn't get a job doing something else. Right. They couldn't get a job in illustration or whatever. Roy Thomas specifically grew up loving comics. He worked on a fanzine when he was a kid and he was somebody who came into it with comics as his dream job essentially right so it's just really interesting to see how that transition goes but i would say that from 1965 or so through 1981 where he got in a fight with jim shooter which we're gonna blame jim shooter for this because jim shooter got in a fight with everyone and most people hated him (laughs) sure so until shooter made him quit the company uh he was pretty much the primary sort of writer and 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 you know somebody who was helping to to make the stories go at Marvel Comics so yeah so my rookie of the year 1965 my man Roy Thomas is uh
0: that is quite the rookie of the year that we have for 1965 yeah. All right. I think I think we've exhausted talking about Marvel. Should we move on and talk about the year for Daredevil? I've
1: I've got hours more to talk about Marvel. <laughs> but yes, fine. Why, proceed.
0: Why do I not doubt that in the slightest actually? The year in Daredevil.
1: All right, Dwayne, here we are. Go ahead and tell me a little bit about what you learned reading through this year's Daredevil offerings.
0: Well, first thing I would I would note is that Daredevil actually had quite a few more appearances this year. In addition to the six issues on the main Daredevil run that, that he was a part of, of uh, he was in Journey into Mystery 116. He was in the Fantastic Four, issues 39 and 40. He was in the X-Men 13. And he was in that Fantastic Four annual number three that you talked about earlier with Reed and Sue Richards getting married. So a bunch of, bunch of appearances. As far as like the art goes on the main books, we talked about it last week. Wal- Wallace Wally Wood was the permanent artist that was brought on at the end of 1964. He would be the artist for all of the books in, in 1965, as well as he actually got a writing credit. He wrote book number 10, which incidentally enough, actually was the first two book story arc that daredevil was a part of every book up until book 10 was basically a standalone issue where Daredevil went up against some bad guy or set of bad guys. And this was the first issue where where it split into a second issue. They actually called it a suspense thriller. Mm-hmm. And it involved the organizer. And uh, we're, we're going to talk about the organization and the organizer uh, when we get into the villains. But the organization was bit ridiculous and yep. the and the organizer was as well and and they even talked about the fact that you know Wally Woods, not normally a, a a writer but he's really wanted to do this and stan said okay let's do this so he
1: wrote it and then in actual fact Wally Wood probably wrote everything you read this week and here's the thing, you've been taken in by Stan's propaganda on all of the pages of Daredevil, right? He's He's got the same thing. This is why Wood leaves at the end, is he can't take it anymore. Because he's tired of not getting paid for being the writer when he had to write it all. I've, I've learned to tune Stan out a little bit sometimes, so I didn't it didn't bother me that much reading. But yeah, it seems like he's being all gracious. I'm going to let Wally write, because he's always kind of wanted to write a little bit. Wally's doing the same thing Wally did on the other five books, and then and then he's got this snarky little thing at the end of the A. Well, yeah, this was really messed up with Wood. Uh, now it. Stan's
0: got to come in and clean it up. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh man, he's lucky he didn't get a like like some sort of an you know an art table thrown at him by that. But there you go. I love Stanley, I really do, but never trust anything he says.
0: Okay. As far as we, we talked last week about the Daredevil costume change, we saw more changes occur in issue number six. Gone are the yellow hood, arms and legs from the costume. Those are all now red. And after and I did actually notice you talked about the single D versus the double D, which was the first change to the costume. In issue number five, I definitely saw the difference nope. then when I went back and looked at some of those books. So. That, that that plays a big role uh, throughout these. Uh, in issue seven, we have a full page panel poster of Namor versus Daredevil, which actually that issue is going to be the spotlight issue that we're going to talk about in just a little bit. Daredevil travels for the first time outside New York to a country called Lichtenbad in issue number nine <laughs> for an absolutely crazy story as well that involved uh this eye doctor that that uh that karen page and wanted him to to go see and this klaus krueger who matt murdoch and foggy nelson knew from way back i guess college yeah. or something it didn't make a lot of sense but suffice to say uh Matt Murdock gets abducted, and so uh, Daredevil ends up outside outside of New York for the first time. Uh, near the end of 1965, Daredevil actually goes to a monthly release. So he's got a title in November and December, and then starting it in 1966, he's going to have an entire full 12-issue run uh, going forward. So... The, the number of stories we're going to have to choose from for the spotlight is going to increase rather dramatically starting next mm-hmm. week. And and lastly, at the end of issue number 11, after unmasking the organizer, Matt Murdock decides he needs a break and needs to get away from Nelson Murdock Law Firm and New York City as a whole. And you, you don't even know exactly what's going to happen with that, but... Uh, yeah, have, we will. We'll tell you about what happens next week. But it was it just sort of. A, I'm leaving, and 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 then he leaves, and you just don't know what's going to happen
1: after that. Yep. He wanted to make sure that you know he didn't want to get in the way of Foggy and and the romance in the office and everything else. So he leaves Foggy and Karen, and away he goes to somewhere. So.
0: All right, let's talk about some of the new powers, toys, and places. Uh, In issue number eight, we actually get a look at Matt Murdock's two-floor apartment in New York City. So he's got his main floor apartment, which is just like any other apartment, but he's also renting out the floor below his apartment. And he's got these like secret stairs that he can go down, and then he's got like this entire like gym set up so he can do workouts and different things like this. And and there is a panel that kind of points out all these different things about this this apartment in issue number yep. eight. It's 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 quite something. I have to tell
1: you, these used also, to be my favorite things. I loved back when they would have like a. Uh, you know a schematic of the bat cave or they'd have a schematic of avengers tower or even the defenders would have a you know schematic of of the ranch it's marvel did this dc did this every once in a while and they were always awesome so
0: they also in the same issue showed off the billy club and and did a very Mm -hmm. detailed mock-up of the billy club as well and pointed out some new features that ended up occurring during this year. This cable cane, it was called, which was this whip-like cable that came out of the Billy Club that allowed uh, Daredevil to grab people or things, or he very frequently was using it to basically swing across the city uh, in, in, in these books the the other new feature that was specifically added in 1965 was this pellet shooter that allowed him to create a smoke screen. So mm-hmm. those were some interesting things that were that were brought up uh in the in the Billy Club. As far as yeah, supporting like too. Yeah, and and yeah, another very detailed uh panel showing off the, where those various features are located on the actual Billy Club itself. As far as some of the supporting characters that we saw during during this year, we have the Warlord Krang and Lady Dorma, who are Atlanteans uh, from issue number seven. Dr. Van Eck, the eye surgeon that Karen Bage wants uh, Matt Murdock to go see about potentially getting his eyesight back. We have these Reform Party candidates that were a part of the Wally Wood uh, double, I- double issue, uh, yep. One of who is the organizer. We don't know who of those that it was, but we do end up by the end of book 11. And we met Deborah Harris, who is actually Foggy Nelson's college girlfriend, who is actually part of the organizer's plan to uh, to, to take over things uh, during this yep. As far as villains, there was some very interesting villains this year. We, we started off with the Fellowship of Fear, which included a guy by the name of Dr. Fear, as well as an ox and eel. The, the characters were actually named Ox and Eel. Uh, we had Namor, the Submariner. We had Stilt Man. You mentioned Stilt Man before. We this was the first introduction of Stilt Man. The Daredevil ends up fighting him and won't be the last. Klaus Kruger. We talked about him, the Duke of Lichtenbad, as well as the organization, which was comprised of the organizer, the head of the organization. We had Frogman, Ape Man, Birdman, and Catman. <laughs> Were we're all part of the organization and following the organizer. These were some really, really like, not very deep characters, like villains. Like there, there isn't a lot here as far as, uh, I, yeah. Namor, Namor is an actual character, but like the rest of these, do, there's not, there's not a lot of meat. To them.
1: Yeah. What's interesting. I was kind of, as you were going through all these, I was thinking about it and it's pretty sad that in an entire year, I think the most important ongoing character that was created is Stiltman. It's either him or it's either him or the Ox, one or the yeah. other. Almost everybody else just disappears. Deborah Harris also continues on a little bit, but it's it's thin. Uh, with with the exception that who who other than Namor has been introduced in the MCU? Out of, these. Out of these, no, no they have. There is one. Is there? Frogman was in She-Hulk.
0: Oh yeah, okay. Good
1: and grief! He's that, he's that terrible villain that's fighting Daredevil at the that's end. That's right.
0: That's right. Okay, I forgot about. I <laughs> forgot about
1: that. He is very forgettable. I understand, <laughs> yes. but yeah. So it's kind of weird that one of these losers made it into the MCU, but they did. So. Congratulations, Frogman.
0: I have any other comments or anything I may have missed on the year of Daredevil before we move on to the spotlight?
1: I mean, my basic things, um I like it that I mean, we can talk about the Namor issues. The most other than that, the main thing to me is that Foggy in this is really kind of a all over the place. In in issue number nine, he's really awful. He's just digging at Matt left and right every time he can because he's angry at him in issue number 10 deborah harris comes in he completely forgets about the fact that he's you know lifetime in love with karen and he's just on to his old girlfriend and then after she turns out to be a traitor he's like number 11 way right back with karen again like nothing else has happened and suddenly you know they're they're pretty much a couple according to him and and matt is crying in a corner and leaving to go to the savage land to get away from them so yeah it's it's ridiculous but i i do think that the melodrama in these is crazy like almost every one of these issues is love triangle between you know Matt or or someone sobbing in in a into the uh you know panel that they're sad because things aren't working no, other than that, I think you covered it, man. And I'm excited to see what you've got to say about our spotlight issue.
0: This week's spotlight story. All right. The spotlight this week is Daredevil number seven. It's from April, 1965. The title of this, the mortal combat with Submariner. I absolutely loved that. And This this is actually, I think, a really, really cool story. So Namor, the Submariner, heads to New York after being convinced by Warlord Krang that he should get back Earth's lands for his people. Upon reaching New York, Namor heads to the law offices of Nelson and Murdoch as he wishes to sue the entire human race for depriving them of their birthright. When he's told he can't, Namor starts wreaking havoc throughout the city. Daredevil then confronts Namor and is soundly defeated and nearly drowns during their battle had Namor himself not saved him. So now after rescuing Daredevil, Namor then just decides to surrender himself to police and ends up appearing in court with Matt Murdock as his lawyer. During those proceedings, Lady Dorma arrives and tells Namor that Krang has started a rebellion back in Atlantis, which was, you know, the whole ruse was that he was supposed to get Namor out so he could do this rebellion, and Namor fell for it. So he's, so Dorma says he's needed urgently back in Atlantis, and despite Murdoch's objection to this, Namor breaks out of jail and causes more chaos while attempting to leave the city. Daredevil and Namor fight yet again, and despite being defeated yet again, Namor is impressed by his would-be opponent, saying, I have fought the Fantastic Four, the Avengers, and other super-powered humans, but none has been more courageous than he... The most vulnerable of all before returning to Atlantis. That is issue number seven from 1965. And the, the, you were, I, I, t- I was telling you that this was the spotlight book this week. And I was like, I loved this book insofar as, first off, the Submariner. We, we've seen him before in other, in other comics that we've read over the last couple of years as well as obviously he was the big bad in Black Panther Wakanda forever in the MCU but the thing the thing that struck out stuck out to me most about this is Daredevil gets his butt kicked like badly and not just once but multiple times nearly dies nearly drowns and, and you were like not surprised by any of this. this is just how he rolls.
1: this is one of the world's most powerful mutants he can fly he's super strong he can survive the pressures of the ocean depths and he's up against a guy who hears real well i mean it is it is not fair at all Namor's going to kick just about anybody's butt so yeah this is appropriate and the fact that in the end the only reason he doesn't die is that you know submariner is like you put, up, you put up a good fight, I respect you, so I'm going to only mostly kill you and then throw you back on the shore so we can fight again, you know? So, yeah, and this is 100% the early Namors I really love because he has that just insufferable sort of confidence, which he then backs up by actually being more <laughs> badass than just about yes. everybody. But then he also does have that nobility about him where he's not just killing randomly and if someone shows that they're worthy, he's going to help them and everything else. So he really is kind of just this wild card, almost like the Hulk, you know? Yeah. Uh, instead of instead of mean, you know, like, like enraged, he's just constantly irritated. But other than that, he's very much like the Hulk.
0: Yeah, I mean there's panels where he's like dealing with tanks and he's picking up like a Jeep when the people are trying to, you know, they're trying to surround him to, to get him to go back to, to, to jail after he breaks out of jail near, near the end of the book. And you're just like, good grief. This, 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 this guy's so powerful. And,
1: and like, what are these people trying to do? They're just speed bumps in the way. One mm-hmm. well, worse. He goes to get a lawyer. And in the course of going to get a lawyer, he, destroys a revolving door because he can't be troubled to learn how to use it he yep. pulls the elevator doors off and pulls the cable down because he doesn't want to wait he destroys the the office door of murdoch and nelson and then when he leaves instead of using all of the holes he's already made he just destroys their wall and goes out yeah, the side of the building.
0: Jump, yeah jumps out the window and then starts flying the, flying the guy is an
1: away. absolute just walking disaster he has no (laughs) no concern for other people's personal property or public property or military property it's just the way it goes
0: i also did want to ask you there is a like a little sticker looking thing on the front of this book that i didn't didn't recognize and it says the mmms wants you and it's got a little thing like van richards thing head pointing out at like the reader and then it appears again on page seven as well as as daredevils like u- yeah. using his cane cable to uh fly around the the city what
1: what is that again or what is that you know it's one of the things about reading on marvel unlimited that is sort of unfortunate is we don't get to a lot of the bullpen bulletins pages and the other things. You remember last week we talked a little about the Merry Marvel Marching Society?
0: Oh yeah. that was yeah. the
1: thing where kids could send in their dollar to to Marvel and then they'd get a membership card and everything else. That would there be what go. that is. There so there you MMMS just shorten it up a little bit for the uh for the covers. So
0: that makes sense and it's, yep. it with the entire with the entire basically cover being you know, this deep blue because they're, it's showing water, this orange like sticker thing with, with the thing head on it pointing at you really sort of jumps out. really does. Yeah. I, 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 I'm not, I would not be surprised if that did not, what was not the intention, obviously, as well as it did, did its job. All right. Do you have any other comments about the spotlight issue this week or should we move into the takeaway?
1: I so I really loved these books actually the the main thing I would like to just talk about a little bit is Wally Wood's art is just so clean and it is so beautiful I love his thunder agent stuff a lot of the other things that he's done over the years this daredevil work is really some of his best it's so so readable and everything's just just perfect so I wish he'd have been able to stay around a while. I understand that uh, for some people, the way Stan worked was great and they loved it. And for some people, it drove them completely nuts, right? Wow. A lot of guys who'd worked in previous shops where they were used to getting full scripts or used to getting paid if they had to do the plotting stuff uh, found that it was it was driving them pretty batty working there. But then you had other guys like Gene Colan, we'll talk about in a while, who are just... All they'd really wanted to do was have the freedom to draw the way they want and it worked perfect when Stan's like, give me a bunch of pages of art, I can put some crazy words on and let's see what happens. So, but but it was a joy to read these. Really good stuff.
0: I I do really like the changes that that he made to the Daredevil costume uh, over no. the, you know, starting with the, the logo on the Last year, and then now, the additional changes to to the costume this year. I, I do agree. I think I think Namor looked really cool in that in that in the Spotlight book. Uh, I actually think, as as crazy as the organization was in Book Ten and the Reform Party candidates and all this, I I I liked that issue insofar as it was it definitely had a different look and feel mm-hmm. than any book up until this point that we've seen. And, and, you know, I've yep. been reading ahead and it definitely going forward is pretty different than anything yep. as well. And so I, I the the fact that he, when he, when he got to do the writing credit, he, he tried to do something different and
1: I, and I think it actually worked pretty well. Well, and this almost anticipates some of the, you know, corruption and and sort of things that you deal with in in Kingpin stories in the future. You know that yeah. the the whatever you call it, the organizer or whatever really is very much a sort of proto kingpin in terms of the way you'd you'd think about how he functions in the story. So it it worked out pretty well I think. Those were those were a lot of fun. And uh now it's just a matter of seeing how they pick all the pieces up and where our heartbroken matt murdoch ends up when he leaves on his voyage this week's takeaway so my takeaway for this week is something that i hadn't thought about before but as i was going through and making up some of the lists of things that happened in the like, it occurs to me that it would have been really cool to have been there when this was happening because i started with the marvel universe i was born in 1969 i started with the marvel universe when i was like 10 so all of this would have already been 20 years in the past pretty much or 15 years in the past when i was starting to encounter it and for people who were used to comic books that didn't have this chronological soap opera feel and the like for people who weren't used to comics that had a an ongoing detailed chronology and a consistency between the books where they all sort of fit together into this jigsaw puzzle it must have been kind of exhilarating to discover this entirely new way of telling stories you know so marvel universe has been described by some people as a soap opera for boys and i think in a lot of ways that makes some sense and you know girls too but back in the day it obviously was you know marvel had its comics set up where the you know the the patsy keens were directed at girls these were directed more at boys but what's strange is when you look at 1965 it helps you see why that description actually makes some sense you know we've got a world that actually marches forward characters that come back in and forth but you've got kids graduating from high school you've got people getting married You've got teams that have formed and that you started to enjoy breaking up and going their own way and being replaced by new people. And at this point, I don't know that you knew that it was ever going to come back. Like Now, in retrospect, the idea that the Avengers had broken up and weren't going to adventure together again would be something we wouldn't even worry about. Because we've seen that every two years they basically jumble everything back and and the like but in 1965 you had no idea what was going to happen you didn't know what was going to happen to spider-man now that he's going to college does he have time to be spider-man what what, what's going to happen here right so i just think it was really interesting to kind of look back at it and go this would have been a completely different experience if you didn't have the hindsight Of knowing that they were just going to play it as a universe that continues to move forward, but does so while never actually moving, right? The wheels are always moving forward, but the car is up on blocks so that it doesn't (laughs) actually go anywhere, you know? Right. And I think in 65, we wouldn't have known that. And it would have been a lot of fun. It would have been very, I can understand why people were so taken with this sort of storytelling back in the 60s and that it it hooked people for life the way it did
0: i would definitely agree with that that is i I mean the books that i read this week I, i it felt like there was movement forward there was this like bittersweet ending at the end of of book 11 you didn't know what was going to happen you you know obviously you knew Something was going to happen, but you don't know if you're going to see Foggy and Karen again. You, you don't know where Daredevil's going to end up, and yep. and so it's 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 really something. And and I I think I really like these stories as 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 a result of that. That's going to put a wrap on this week's show. We'd like to thank you for joining us. You're new to the podcast please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice that way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released if you've already subscribed we'd appreciate it if you'd share the show via social media or leave us a review that will help new listeners find the show much easier whether you're new to the podcast or you've been with us from the beginning we'd love to get your thoughts about this week's show you can send those to us via email at Comments at ComicsOvertime.com or via Twitter or Blue Sky. We're at Comics Overtime there. Until next week, take care, everybody.